0: One of the things that I like to do uh, whenever I'm studying is I like to get a big picture look at a New Testament letter. Uh, This helps me whenever I'm trying to figure out some of the details of what's in the letter. uh, I can always go back to that big picture understanding of what the letter is all about. And that's what I'd like for us to do this morning is to work our way through the New Testament letter to the Philippians. Uh, and try to understand what Paul's big picture message is for these Christians in the first century. Uh, Just as a little bit of background, uh, whenever we get to chapter 1 of Philippians, Paul describes himself as being in prison. So this is one of Paul's prison letters. Uh, He is been in prison in Jerusalem and Caesarea. He's even been in prison in Philippi before. Uh, And it seems now he's in prison in Rome awaiting Nero's judgment. Do you know anything about uh, Caesar and Nero? It's not encouraging to know that you're going to be going before him in order to be judged. And that's what Paul has to look forward to. Uh, His situation there in Rome, we're told in Acts 28, isn't too bad. Uh, He's kind of under house arrest. He's uh, able to interact with uh, brethren who come and visit him. He has an opportunity to teach the Jews there. And he's trying to make the best out of his situation, but he's in prison and restricted from doing all that he might want to do. How do you think Paul... Feels about being in prison. How would we feel? Is Paul having a pity party? Is Paul saying, God, why why have you put me in prison and and look at all these things I'm restricted from doing to your glory. If you would just let me out of this prison, I could do more. That's not what we see him doing in chapter 1. Instead, we see him rejoicing. Paul is rejoicing in chapter 1, verse 12 and 18, because of the advance of the gospel that has happened as a result of his imprisonment. Being in prison hasn't hampered the gospel spreading. It has given the brethren boldness to go out and to proclaim the gospel. His suffering has resulted in Christ being glorified And he has an attitude of rejoicing about that. He actually says in verse 21, To him, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. In this difficult situation that Paul finds himself in, he finds a way to glorify God and to be excited about what what God is doing through his suffering. He sees his life as being lived for Christ, an instrument for Christ's work. In many ways, this whole letter is about that work that Paul sees himself doing. And he's wanting the Philippians to take up that work for themselves. The Philippians, interestingly enough, seem to be pretty good. You look at a lot of the New Testament letters, you have all kinds of issues in those churches, right? you got false doctrines being taught with the Galatians. you got sexual immorality and scandal with the Corinthians. you got all these uh, bad things that he has to address in a lot of these churches, but we don't see him address any real bad things in the Philippian letter. It seems as though they are doing pretty good, and it turns out they have been supporting Paul ever since they were converted. Paul, Silas, and Timothy came into Philippi and converted those who became members of the Philippian church. And since then, they have been, what he calls in verse 5, partners with him of the gospel of Christ. They are supporting him and working with him to allow for him to continue his work in spreading the gospel. So this letter is actually unique because there's no doctrinal issue to address And there's very few problems in general. So how is Paul going to write a letter to a church that seems to be doing pretty good? Well, you can imagine, right? He doesn't have to spend a lot of time correcting. He's going to spend a lot of time encouraging the Christians in Philippi. Let's see the purpose of this letter. Whenever we get down to verse 27 of chapter 1. Sanford just read it. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. There's a lot of very interesting things that we can see just in this one verse. This is Paul's purpose for writing this letter. And notice what he says. He says, only this, or this, the Christian Standard Version says, for this reason only, just one thing I'm writing to you. Isn't it nice whenever you're reading through a letter that someone writes you or or some information that you've been given, and they give you one statement, just a one-liner, that if you can digest that one-liner, then you'll understand what the whole thing's about. That's what we have in this letter. Just one thing. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. What does that word worthy mean? What what does it mean whenever you say something is worth my effort, or maybe something is not worth my effort? Maybe I'm wanting to teach someone and they're not worth the time, I might say. We place a certain amount of value on our time and our effort, we give it some level of worth. What is the gospel worth? Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. How can we live in a way that is worth the gospel? Seems like nothing we could ever do would really be worth what God has done for us. Yet Paul commands us let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel when we extend some kind act towards someone else, how do we expect them to respond? We expect a sense of gratitude coming from that person, right? We expect them to recognize what we've done, and if we have a purpose that we would want them to fulfill in their life, something we would want them to do, we would want them to think about that thing and maybe do it. And that's what God has done for us. God has given us a purpose to fulfill in giving us the gospel. Paul is telling us we must fulfill that purpose. We we must live worthily of that gospel. Well, what does that look like? That's what we're going to find out as we study this letter. What does it look like to live a worthy life? Notice right after that he says, so that, right? So that whenever I send to you and hear about you, I may hear that you are standing firm. Standing firm. This is part of the worthy life. You're standing firm in the things that were taught to you. You are holding to those things. When the temptations come, you're not wavering. You're not giving in. When the trials come, you're not wavering. You're standing firm. You're standing fast. And then he says, striving for the faith of the gospel. Or other translations say, fighting for the faith. What does the worthy life look like? It looks like one who is standing firm and fighting for the faith of the gospel. Like Paul is doing, right? In Rome, even in prison. Standing firm, fighting for the faith. That's what Paul wants the Philippians to do, to live worthy of the gospel. But he wants them to do this together. Notice how he says it. Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Can we live our lives as those who have received the gospel? Can we live our lives in isolation? Can we stand firm and strive for the faith of the gospel all by ourselves? and be living a life that's worthy. He wants us to do this together, side by side, with one mind and one spirit, working together for the faith of the gospel. So we need to live worthy of the gospel together. When you keep reading and you get to verse 29, I like the way the New Living Translation puts this. In the New Living Translation, verse 29, "...for you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for Him. We are in this struggle together. You have seen my struggle in the past, and you know that I am still in the midst of it." Notice he says, "...we are struggling together." We are in this struggle together. We can rely on each other. Paul doesn't exclude himself from this struggle, from this suffering, from standing firm and fighting for the faith. And he doesn't want the Philippians to exclude themselves either. The life that is to be lived worthy of the gospel is trusting in Christ and suffering for Christ together With the fellow believers. But did you see what Paul said about suffering for Christ? He says in the New Living Translation, it says, We consider it a privilege. We consider it a privilege to suffer for Christ. Is that how we view suffering? Do we view suffering for Christ to be a privilege? Paul did. That's why he says to live is Christ. He is living his life for Christ. He is suffering for Christ. His, his life is all about imitating the life of of Christ, who suffered. Do we know anything about privilege? Think about the Philippians for a second. The Philippians are actually Roman citizens. To live in Rome is to have all the privileges of a Roman citizen. And Philippi is called Little Rome. It is... A sub city of Rome, a very powerful city that wants to be just like Rome. They have their own government set up similar to that of Rome. So, and everyone who's in the city is a Roman citizen if you're born there. You are a Roman citizen. Being a Roman citizen means you have privileges. One of them we see is Paul's appeal to Caesar. Another one is, you're not going to endure unjust suffering or treatment whenever someone brings a charge against you. They have all kinds of privileges as Roman citizens that allow them to get away from suffering. And here is Paul telling them, you have a privilege to suffer for Christ. imagine how opposed that is to them? to grow up in a society where they can't be mistreated by government officials without those officials suffering for their mistreatment of a Roman citizen. They have certain privileges that allow them to avoid suffering. And they have a mentality of, I have a privilege and I can avoid suffering. And here's Paul telling them, you have a privilege from Christ that you can suffer for Christ. Can we relate to that? We live in a society that is very good to us in that we are not going to be persecuted and beaten and suffer to that extent from our government according to the law. We have a privilege. We can avoid suffering. But here Paul calls them to suffer for Christ. And he calls us as well. So is suffering for Christ a privilege to us? Why would suffering for Christ be a privilege? He tells us in chapter 2, if you look in chapter 2, verses 1 through 8... To the point of death, even the death on a cross. Paul tells us why it is a privilege to suffer for Christ. Because Christ has suffered for us. In this text, He also reveals to us the way in which we suffer, right? We're suffering together. We're suffering with one another. We're of one mind. We're considering the interests of others as more important than our own interests, like Christ did for us. Why is sacrificial service a privilege for us? Because the good news of the gospel is that we have a God who has sacrificially served us. Think about that for a moment. We have a God who has sacrificially served us. That's why we can say, as Paul is saying in the midst of his suffering, to live is Christ. Paul is willing to suffer for Christ and he considers it a privilege because of the great kindness that has been extended to him. And we live in service to God by serving each other sacrificially as He has served us. Interestingly enough, the only criticism of Paul's in the whole letter is that of Judea and Syntyche who are fighting with each other and can't agree in the Lord. Paul is asking us to sacrificially serve one another. And if we're to sacrificially serve one another, where is the fighting going to be? Where is the striving against one another going to be? There shouldn't be any of it, right? We should be together. We should be united with one mind and one spirit striving to suffer for Christ to be exalted. Have you ever tried to suffer alone? It makes suffering so much worse. Here Paul is telling them to suffer together to strive together, to rely on one another, to share your sufferings with each other, to to use those sufferings to encourage one another, to have greater boldness to proclaim the Gospel. You know, I think we all struggle with the idea of suffering. Suffering. Especially if we're suffering unjustly, as Paul has. We live in lives that are full of all kinds of comforts, all kinds of privileges, and we get busy doing things that have nothing to do with God. Are we living worthily? Are we really able to say to live is Christ in our lives? Sacrificial service can happen in every part of our lives. When we're at work, we can sacrificially serve our co workers. When we're at home, we can sacrificially serve our families. And all throughout the time of our day, we can be thinking about the interests of others, our brethren who are suffering for Christ as well. We can have a mind that is focused on sacrificially serving others. And we can find the time to do it in whatever we're doing. Paul gives us three examples in chapters 2 and 3. First of all, he tells us that Timothy is the type of man who is generally, genuinely concerned for the interest of the Philippians. So concerned that he's willing to go there and leave Paul in order to serve them and spend time with them. And he's hoping to go there soon. He's willing to uproot himself and to leave his mentor in order to sacrificially serve the Philippians and help encourage them in their suffering in the city of Philippi. Why is he doing that? The text tells us, because he seeks the interests of Christ, His King, over His own interests. The second example Paul gives us is that of Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus has served Paul and the Philippians by bringing some of that gift, the support that the Philippians are giving Paul, to Paul in Rome. And along the way, he almost dies bringing that gift. What a picture of sacrifice. Giving himself to fulfill the work that that needs to be done to support The spread of the gospel. This man is completely laying his life on the line for that cause. And third and most interestingly, Paul again points to himself. Paul talks about his own life and how he has sacrificed his own citizenship in Israel in order to serve Christ. He recounts some of those great privileges he had, right? He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was one of the most prominent Roman citizens, or Israelite citizens, enjoying all those fruits and comforts in that society. And he's willing to give it up to serve Christ. He says, I count all those things as rubbish. That I might know Christ and that I might know his resurrection. He counts it a privilege to suffer for Christ, that he might know Christ. We can come to know Christ in our suffering. We endure what Christ has endured. in chapter 3, verse 17 through 19. Let's read what he says there. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. He tells the Philippians, imitate us, Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, who are living worthily of the gospel. But don't imitate those who are enemies of the cross of Christ. Those who live unworthily. Of the gospel. Notice what he says about those. Their God is their belly. What a graphic image that is for us, right? They're worshiping their appetites, they're seeking to serve themselves rather than others. And they think they're going to find fulfillment in satisfying their own appetites. They find something in the world that satisfies that appetite to some level and they seek to worship it as their God. They glory in their shame. Your God is your appetite. Your feeling that you might get some fulfillment out of this thing. So you take a little bit in and you get a little satisfied, but you're not fully there yet. So you become a glutton of whatever that is to your own shame. You're worshiping and serving the creature rather than the Creator. Your mind is set on earthly things as though those things are going to be where you find fulfillment. These are those who are enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. This is what it looks like to live in a way that's unworthy of the gospel of Christ. You see the big contrast in the letter. Yet those who live worthily, those who suffer for Christ's sake, those who are sacrificially serving others and putting the interests of others first, they are living for Christ, they are living with Christ's interest in their own minds versus those whose God is their belly, who focus on self, who serve stuff rather than serving God. And we see ourselves in the enemies of the cross of Christ. What are we going to do about it? How can we change to live worthy of the gospel? As Paul said, we can seek to imitate those who are living in a way that to live is Christ and to die is gain counting all things of this life as rubbish, as not worth striving after, and instead standing firm and fighting for the faith of the gospel. We have to change our mindset from being focused on earthly things to being focused on spiritual things. The things of God, the things of Christ. Focused on where God and Christ live. He says in chapter 3, verse 20 through 21, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself. What an amazing motivation that Paul gives to us To live worthy of the gospel of Christ. Not only should we consider it a privilege to suffer for Christ. Because of what Christ has done for us. But we should think about living in heaven. We are citizens of heaven. How would a citizen of heaven live? How would Job live in my life? If he endured the trials that I'm going through. How would Moses live? How would Paul live who is now in heaven? How would a citizen of heaven conduct themselves if they're finding themselves here on this earth? We are citizens in heaven. We have a hope of a new body. This lowly body that's weak, is able to be transformed into the image of the glory of God, and Christ will do that for us. We have that as our motivation, to strive together side by side for the faith of the gospel. There's more motivation found in chapter 4, verse 12 and 13. Paul says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound In every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Paul says that he has learned to grow from his sufferings. It is a process. You have to know how to live when things are going great and still be submissive and suffering to sacrificially serve others. And you have to learn when things are going terrible to still look to serving God as the greatest privilege that you can ever have. And finally he says... we can can rely on Christ who strengthens us. This text is misused many times and people are talking about Christ strengthening them to succeed in life. But in the context of this letter, we see that Christ is going to strengthen us to endure the suffering that will happen as we sacrificially serve others. He's going to help us to endure the suffering, to glorify His name. So are we living worthy of the gospel? Paul's whole letter is focused on living like Christ. To live is Christ and to die is gain, right? Well, we certainly can see Paul living for Christ and now we can see the gain that we have when we die. We get to be with God in heaven. We get a new body. We're in this struggle together. He says that. He makes that point. Paul is struggling with the Philippians. Paul is struggling and we are struggling together as we serve our God. We consider it a privilege and we realize that Christ will strengthen us as we try to do this in our own lives. That's the letter to the Philippians. I hope that that's been encouraging for you as it has been for me to study it as well. If you have heard all these things and you recognize that living a life worthy of the Gospel is what a Christian is called to do, and you realize there's going to be suffering with that, but you realize that it's worth it in the end. That you can have a home in heaven when this life is over. It has been promised by God. And we all can enjoy it together one day. If you need to make a change in your life, to be obedient to the Gospel, now's the time. Please come as we stand and as we sing.